If, you know, you've never driven a racing car before and you jumped in it, I think the sheer brutality of the force that goes through your body is probably the thing that will take people back the most. This is professional racing driver Jamie Chadwick. The speed is a big factor. If you've not been in the car, if I've not been in the car for a while and, you know, I go out the pit lane, that feeling of speed um, before your body adapts to it is like no other. The physicality, the force on your neck, for example, uh, the G-force it's like if you're driving on the motorway and you put your hand out the window and you feel that kind of resistance, that but even greater. The difficult thing with our sport is the margins are so small. You have to be so pinpoint accurate in everything that you do at such a high speed. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, but it's so rewarding when you get it right that it's what keeps you sort of coming back for more. Welcome to the Future Lab podcast, bringing you the stories behind the technological innovations taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present day reality. I'm Lucy Johnston. I'm the curator of the annual Future Lab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and I study the impact of new technologies on industry, society, and the world around us. I'm meeting people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth and using technology to change how we live our lives. In this episode, The Racing Game. This podcast is brought to you by Randox, a medical diagnostic company based in Belfast. Over the series, we've been talking to some of their staff to find out what they're working on. My name is Dr. Claire Dean. My role is one of the team leaders within the Molecular Diagnostics Research and Development Department here at Randox. The past 18 months have been hard, but the pandemic has given Claire a very rare opportunity at work. Very often, as a scientist, you know, you're making tests and you never really see the clinical impact. Whereas with the COVID test, uh, we could see the clinical impact of that, you know, almost immediately. That's because Claire works on diagnostic tests for respiratory conditions. To be tasked with something so relevant has been amazing. I really sincerely enjoy my job. And never has it been more exciting than it has been in the last 12 months. You've probably been hearing a lot about polymerase chain reaction tests this past year. PCR-based tests have become nearly everyday language. We heard about Randox's incredible COVID testing efforts in episode one, and a key part of that was their PCR test. At the end of the day, we are the biggest testing facility in the UK and perhaps Europe. We'll hear more about that later in the episode. Now, back to the Future Lab podcast. The future of racing in motorsport and beyond isn't just about fancy new technology for the sake of it. As we've discussed previously on this podcast, 
motorsport has a direct R&D flow to automotive developments. But looking to the future also means asking how we can make meaningful change within sports. Whether it's in service of gender equality or financial accessibility or leading the way in the fight against climate change. In this episode, we're asking, what kind of forward momentum can we create when cutting-edge new technology meets real human beings? I feel like summer is finally here. Only I've never had hay fever before, but suddenly this is becoming a thing now, I think. Jamie Chadwick is 23 years old, and she's development driver for Williams F1. She competes for Veloce in the brand new off-road electric car racing series Extreme E, which launched its first season this year. And she won the inaugural all-female W Series in 2019. If she makes it to Formula One, as many people are tipping her to do, she'll be the sixth woman ever to officially enter a Grand Prix. It's important to have an end goal. I think I always set Formula One as that. Only one woman has ever scored points in F1, and that was Lella Lombardi in the 70s. So if Jamie achieves her dream, it'll be a huge moment for women in the sport. Jamie's at the forefront of a future-looking motorsport industry, one where financial accessibility, gender equality and the climate are embedded in how the sport works. From the routes into professional driving to the technology powering the cars round the track. Jamie was born in Bath, but when she was young, her family spent some time living on the Isle of Man. Which, for those that don't know, is a little bit of a sort of speed temple. Um, it's the home of the Isle of Man TT. An incredible motorcycling race, which we used to watch um, as kids growing up, literally outside our front door. Um, and they also have all sorts of other stuff, whether it's rallying or you know, different types of motorsport, it's kind of probably where, without realising, my interest and my love for the sport sort of started. Jamie started karting when she was just 12. But at the time I moved back to the UK or back to England, I had a bit more access to different kart tracks around the country and I was able to actually kind of progress a bit more into the sport. My older brother, I think, went go-karting at a friend's birthday party and he started to get into it and I kind of followed, followed in his footsteps. So, yeah, it all started very naturally, very much as a hobby. But I didn't come from, you know, any motor racing background. It wasn't my parents or anything like that who, who raced prior to me. That can make professional racing a particularly challenging sport to get into. Because we weren't from a racing background, even little things as to knowing what cart to have and what team to go with and, you know, all these little things... If you're in the know, you, you understand, but, you know, our family didn't. It's not the easiest sport to get into and you need quite a lot of financial backing um, to progress in the sport. Jamie got her first big break as a teenager when she won the Janetta Junior Scholarship. Which offers a young driver a fully funded season in this Junior Car Racing Championship. Janetta Scholars get access to a car, fuel and other consumables and a team to support them throughout the season. I was actually age 14 at the time when I won it. That gave me, I guess, my first a big semi-professional opportunity to go racing in quite a serious category. After that, Jamie got her first step up into senior racing when she entered the GT series. Until that point, she'd been racing against other teenagers. Similar age competitors to myself, age 14 to 16. 
it's an endurance championship, so you share the car with another driver. And yeah, we were by far the youngest pairing. Most of our competitors were sort of 30 plus years old, so a lot more experience. But that didn't stop Jamie and her co-driver, Ross Gunn. We had quite a lot of support from the manufacturer that we were with at the time, which was Aston Martin. We were able to win, win it in our first year. As well as being an incredible result for two drivers who were significantly less experienced than the other competitors, this also made Jamie both the youngest and the first female driver to ever win the GT Championship. It would become one of many milestones that Jamie's achieved in her career so far. After going from go-karts to sports cars with Aston Martin, Jamie made an unusual transition. To single-seaters, so into Formula 3. It's a little bit like being a track cyclist and going into maybe road cycling or even maybe endurance runner into, uh, into a sprinter. So it was quite a big um, shift. But moving into single-seater cars was major for Jamie because it potentially opened the door to Formula One in the future. It's important to have an end goal or something in sight to not necessarily have that chance to reach Formula One because, you know, the career pathway that I'd taken wouldn't allow me to. I think I would always look back and be asking myself what would have been. So Jamie decided to attempt the move from endurance racing, where drivers take alternating stints at the wheel, to pure single-seaters. It wasn't an easy transition to make. I knew the stakes were quite high. I did my first year and had sort of an okay year. She got on the podium once that year, coming in third at the Rockingham Motor Speedway in the fifth round of the championship. But it wasn't enough to cement a new career in single-seater cars. I knew I needed to make, make a big step for the second year if I was wanted to progress further. You've got your engineer in, in your ears and you can see, for example, the people you're racing against, but you very much feel on your own. There's a definite kind of ability to, to drown out the surrounding noise and just focus on the job in hand. That said, the sense of occasion when you do see the crowd and before you get in the car and all that kind of stuff definitely makes a big difference. In Jamie's second year in F3, she took first place in the second race of the season at Brands Hatch. I didn't actually realise, but meant that I was the first female to win to win a race in British Formula 3 or Formula 3 generally. Jamie had seen firsthand just how hard it can be to make it as a professional racing driver with all the financial barriers. And she was standing on podiums that have rarely or never had a woman on them. I'd raced against men my whole career. I probably, you know, only raced against a couple of female drivers. I see motorsport as a sport where all genders are capable of competing equally. That's why Jamie was on the fence when she first heard about the W Series, a brand new championship for female racing drivers. I didn't feel the need to race in a championship that was, you know, just for women. But as she learned more about the goals of the series and the opportunities it was offering women in sport, she realised this could be a way to help close the gender gap that's always plagued motor racing. It's definitely a sport that is the perception that needs to change. You know, once you're in the sport, from a female's point of view, you know, there's no reason why we can't compete at the, the top level. It's just not seen as a sport that's that accessible to women. And 
yeah, what W Series is doing is just giving that sort of platform and that visibility of women in the sport. They were fully funding drivers and giving quite a big opportunity to sort of propel the talent that was found in this championship forwards and into sort of categories beyond. Jamie decided it could be a great opportunity for her. And actually it's been a championship that's massively transformed you know, the direction my career's gone in. And yeah, I was fortunate enough to win it in, in its first year. Um, and I think the exposure and sort of the leg up that that's given me has been massive. Championships like the W Series are one way to make sport more accessible for women in the future. The more girls that get involved from a young age, the more that will filter through naturally to the top and, yeah, and it will hopefully create a more diverse sport. Jamie's blazing a serious trail for women, but there are also new technologies that are radically changing who gets the chance to break into motorsport. Like sim racing... In simulated racing video games, the player's controls include a seat, steering wheel and foot pedals. The games attempt to emulate a real driving experience as closely as possible. And with increasing regularity, top sim racers are able to sidestep from gaming directly into real car racing and win. It's probably the only eSport where the skills are fairly translatable towards the actual driving of a real car. You can actually take sim racers into reality and they can be successful. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier in the episode, we met Claire, who develops PCR tests for diseases like COVID-19. Without PCR tests, we wouldn't have been able to slow down the spread of COVID-19 as effectively. But what exactly is a PCR test? It's a polymerase chain reaction. It is where you take a tiny amount of someone's DNA and you amplify it many, 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 many times to the point at which you can detect it. It works by taking a single sample from a patient. A swab would be inserted first into your throat, into the nasopharynx, which is right back at the area where your throat, the back of your mouth meets your throat. And it would be rotated a few times. And then we also insert your nose really quite far, again, to the point at which your nose, your nasal passage meets your, your throat. That's where scientists think the virus populates most. So they're trying to collect as many cells as possible to test in the lab. So if there is, for example, SARS-CoV-2, which is the the virus that causes COVID-19, you will have that in your body. But if you're in the early stages of COVID, you may only have one or two tiny copies of the virus in your body. We have the ability to amplify that many times so that we can pick even one or two copies up and tell you that you have this disease or this pathogen in your system. This test lets doctors diagnose infected patients quickly so they can isolate and help stop the spread of disease. Claire's team hasn't just been working on the fight against COVID-19 either. Their tests can also identify illnesses like flu and rhinovirus, one of the most common viral infections and the usual cause of a common cold. And because they provide so much information about a patient's illness, the tests have the potential to help with another major issue in respiratory diseases, 
the overprescription of antibiotics. We'll check in with Claire later in the episode to find out more about that. In 2021, Jamie Chadwick started racing in a new electric off-road racing series, Extreme E. She joined the Veloce team. Veloce is a company that's positioned itself at the cutting edge of motorsport by specialising in both esports and real-life racing. They're proving that sim racing gamers can transition from bedrooms to racetracks. One of the drivers that's in their stable is a guy called James Baldwin, who actually won a competition called World's Fastest Gamer that gave him a chance of racing in real life. He won his first race. The possibility of using gaming as a route into professional driving could have major implications for the accessibility and diversity of motorsport in the future. In go-karting, for example, to sort of make a name or get support still has such high cost implications that sim racing will hopefully have, you know, a really positive impact on the grassroots of the sport. Football, everyone kicks the football in their time. So really the people that you see at the top level in the premiership are the best, but not everyone gets the chance to drive go-karts. I think it just creates a much greater talent pool for, for those getting involved in motorsport. But is anyone resistant to the idea that gamers could translate their experience onto a real racing track? Definitely there's more traditional approaches um, in, in the thought process around it. However, I just think the stats are there now. For drivers like James Baldwin, who started out in karting but couldn't continue on that path because of the financial burden. He became a champion in the world of sim racing, and that's how the door to professional racing in real cars was opened to him. There's a long list of um, gamers that actually shouldn't even be called gamers because they've transferred into the real world and they've performed straight away. So I think it silences any critics. And I think we should see any sort of route into our sport as a positive. I don't think there should be, you know, any criticisms around that. There's no doubt, though, there are some things sim racing just can't prepare you for. I think the main thing is the fear factor. You have a nice reset button in sim racing. We don't have that, sadly, in reality. If you crash the car, you actually crash the car. And the cost implications of that is much greater than in sim racing. While the danger and cost of real racing don't transfer to sim racing, the two disciplines are cross-pollinating in almost every other way. Getting a car set up for a Formula One race usually means a racing driver spending thousands of hours in a factory simulator. And there are elements of gaming already making their way into racing. Virtual reality and augmented reality are used to design and build cars. AR is used in racing broadcasts, for example, the attack mode activation zone in Formula E. And as we heard on episode two of this podcast, there's also the Robo Race Metaverse, where drivers on real-world racetracks negotiate augmented reality elements like obstacles, power-ups and rivals. And one of the newest motorsport formats is Extreme E. Jamie drives in this series for Veloce, a company that's blurring the lines between racing and gaming by having a sim racing arm as well as an Extreme E arm. Obviously it's fantastic racing, off-road racing around the world. By doing this, Veloce's working to push motorsport into a new era of accessibility and sustainability. 
encouraging promoting climate change awareness and gender equality. Gender equality because each team has to have one male driver, one female driver, um, and I'm the female driver for Veloce Racing. And climate change because firstly we're using electric vehicles and we're going to places around the world that are a vulnerable position because of climate, climate change. But secondly, because we use the platform that we have, the eyeballs that are watching Extreme to try and educate and try and give lessons about the issues that are going on and highlight them and how we can make meaningful change. Jamie says when she first joined Extreme E, she mainly saw it as a chance to do some really exciting racing. As time's gone on, I think my understanding and my interest in, you know, the climate issues and everything else that Extreme E stands for has definitely got, got much greater. To have that ability to, like I said, utilise this platform that we have with sport to try and make even just a small amount of difference, I think is um, yeah, a really positive thing. But of course, Extreme has also provided her with an incredible opportunity to do some amazing racing. I come from a circuit racing world and Extreme is off-road racing, so it's very new to me. I'm now racing against some of the best off-road racing drivers in the world in a discipline that's completely new to me, so it's a huge opportunity. The way the format works was, for example, in Senegal, I was nearly racing wheel-to-wheel -wheel with the likes of Sebastian Loeb, Johan Christofferson, some of the biggest names in the sport. The team owners, for example, are the likes of Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg, Jensen Button, big names that I've followed and admired for many years. So to finally be in an environment like that and to be competing in, in that kind of environment is alongside everything that Extreme Me stands for from a personal point of view, uh, massively exciting. So in the world of motor racing, embracing new technology is essential for evolving the sport in multiple ways. And drivers like Jamie are paving the way for a new and exciting generation of racers. Women or young girls need to do it because they want to do it. And um, at the moment, I just don't think the interest is there as much as it should be. An easy way, in my opinion, to change that is by creating more role models, making it a more attractive sport for young girls and Stuff like W Series and any of these kind of initiatives that are getting women to the forefront of the sport are definitely going to assist that. And motorsport isn't the only place where racing is being used to push the boundaries of accessibility and sustainability. From the first season, from the first races, we will see you know, men and women compete side by side you know, on the track. This is Hrag Sarkissian, CEO of the soon-to-be-launched e-scooter championship focusing on creating a, a new accessible sport, one that's relevant, that's sustainable, and that is at the forefront of the micro-mobility revolution. Earlier in the episode, we spoke to Claire, who developed COVID tests during the pandemic. Claire's department's been working on respiratory diseases for 10 years, long before COVID came along. And in that time, there's been a worrying trend. One of the current issues around respiratory diagnosis is the overprescription of antibiotics. People with respiratory infections go to the GP, who will often prescribe them antibiotics. Which are, as we all know, ineffective against viruses. When a GP doesn't know if an infection is viral or bacterial, they may prescribe antibiotics incorrectly. This won't help the patient, 
and it contributes to a huge emerging issue where the population is building up antibiotic resistance. That will render the antibiotics that we have ineffective. The PCR test Claire's been developing allows a GP to determine whether a patient's symptoms are caused by bacteria or a virus. If the test shows the patient has a virus, the GP will know not to prescribe an antibiotic. So PCR tests are about so much more than COVID-19. You can learn more about the work Randox does by visiting randoxhealth.com. We really saw this opportunity, you know, electric scooters, the way they're growing. And because it's really fun, because, you know, we see these kids that, you know, what if there was a way to actually put these on a, on a circuit to see them race next to each other? You know, it's, it's a great platform. And, you know, one thing led to the other. Here we are, two years later, building this whole, this whole new sport, essentially. Parag Sarkissian is the CEO of a company called eScooter. That's E-S-K-O-O-T-R who are gearing up to launch a global e-scooter racing championship. Parag is originally from Lebanon and is a self-described serial entrepreneur. Micromobility is a huge passion of his, and it's a word you might start to hear more and more when it comes to talking about public transport in cities. You know, that includes bikes and specifically e-scooters as well. If you live in a city, you've probably noticed more and more electric scooters appearing on the roads and pavements. These battery-powered motorized scooters are becoming a go-to for people of all ages looking for a fast and fun way to zip around the city. Because as cities get more and more congested and polluted, you know, it's, it's become a viable mode of transportation for people to get around in an efficient way, in a sustainable way. Micromobility really plays a big role in helping decongest cities and, and helping cities become more livable. Though he notes... Not everyone has welcomed the arrival of these nippy electric scooters in the city. Some people complain about scooter clutter in the sense that they're on the sidewalks and they're basically invasive. And others say that they're dangerous because you know they shouldn't be riding on the roads. Harag says one of the problems is that the technology arrived and became very popular before cities and governments worked out how to integrate the scooters properly into the existing landscape of the city. You know, the, the space moves so quickly, there's a lack of best practices, development of infrastructure, there needs to be, you know, proper rules in place and so on. But Hrag believes e-scooters have an important role to play in the future of our cities. An e-scooter is taking a big leap to promote this new form of sustainable transport. They're creating an entirely new sport electric scooter racing. It's important to really emphasize how racing is truly an incubator for mobility and how it's played a big role in in shaping and helping shape mobility and accelerating the development of safety and technology. You know, and this is really core to our mission as well. On one hand, it's creating an extremely accessible sport. But with this sport, we really hope to help shape cities, you know, to make them livable, to, to help develop the right standards, you know, the infrastructure. The mission really goes beyond racing. You know, racing is really the, is really how you get into all of this. But it's it's creating a place for anybody that wants to interact with micromobility. For the team behind the e-scooter championship or ESC, this is a natural progression from their existing passion for car racing. Most of us have been very rooted into motorsports and racing. So my COO Khalil, for example, you know, he was an ex-racer. They even have team members we've met before on this very podcast. Like racing driver Lucas Degrassi, 
who we spoke to in our episode Replacing the Human Driver. The first e-scooter championship will be taking place really soon, next year in fact. 2021 is our season zero. It's our exhibition season. And it's, you know, where we get everything in place. And 2022 is basically season one. We're hoping to have seven rounds globally. And, you know, a a very nice calendar, basically. The scooters that racers will ride in this championship are very similar to the e-scooters you might see on the streets where you live. But they've had to build specialisation into them, a spec that's suited to professional racing. It's a carbon fibre chassis, you know, it has these two six kilowatt motors, that we've designed specifically for the ESC, you know, it has data logging capabilities. It has, you know, an amazing technology built in, you know, that can really enhance the racing experience. It allows also riders to customize certain elements of the scooter and they go quite fast. We know it definitely goes over a hundred kilometers. The speed is definitely impressive, but it's really impressive to see how they handle, how they can lean on the corners. You know, when you watch a rider riding the scooter, you know, the stance, the, you know, the position of his feet, the way he leans into corners, I think, you know, that's really something impressive. And then there's the design of the scooters. The bodywork on the outside is made out of natural fiber, which is actually material that comes from flax. So this is this is one of the ways where we tackle sustainability is also the introduction of, of new materials. And these are all things that can trickle down to actual street scooters. But while the racing scooters have to be specialized so riders can achieve impressive speeds, take risks and stay safe too, the goal was always to keep the scooters recognizable not too far off the scooters you see on the streets now. And just like in car racing, the technology will be developed even further as it becomes available to professional racers and teams. Over time, what we want to do is really open up development for the teams because really this is when you accelerate the development of you know, safety and technology. It's also where you know, teams and manufacturers can start developing their own units uh, with technology that can be transferable directly to, you know, to the streets. Again, just like in the world of motorsport, eventually we'll see features of the racing scooters show up in scooters being used for public transport around the world. Ultimately, we want people to understand the relationship and you know, for it to be transferable. So it does look like a racing scooter, but it also looks like a scooter. One of the ways e-scooter racing will differ from traditional motorsport is that it won't require new infrastructure, like dedicated racing circuits, to be built. The events that you know we plan on having essentially would be would be held in the city because first and foremost we want to be able to showcase micro mobility in, in its context, right? So our preference is to do them on city circuits rather than than actual circuits. But the circuits will be much smaller than let's say you know car racing or car circuits. One of the nice things is that the footprint of the event can be much more compact, much more agile than a full-size track that you would deploy in a city. So, you know, it causes minimum disruptions to the cities. And, you know, there's an opportunity to use the roads of parks, basically, you know, using a combination of streets and parks where, you know, we have this really interactive, engaging event that's in the heart of the city that, you know, people can be close to and, you know, that has a reasonable footprint. The ESC is taking applications as we speak for the first cohort of riders that will compete in the competition. And like many new extreme sports, they're starting their search by looking at athletes in other adventure sports disciplines. 
you know, we're seeing a lot of people come from the from the two wheel side, right? From from motorcycle racing, we're seeing people coming from the freestyle scooter world. So, for example, Dakota Schutz is one of our rider ambassador. He's a four time world champion in freestyle scootering. Um, we have people coming from the snowboard and the alternative sports side, and we have you know the BMX side. So, you know, we're we're building a new sport. So, what's what's really interesting, and this is something that we've seen during testing, is you know, we're seeing all these different styles, you know, come into one place. And essentially over time, what will happen is, you know, the best bits of every style will converge into a new style, which is basically scooter racing. Although the ESC is pulling from other sports to find the first professional riders, they have plans to quickly open the sport up to anyone who wants to compete. Starting season two and later, we, you know, we're working very hard to deploy a strong grassroots infrastructure, basically, where we'd work with local franchise holders to develop an ecosystem where anybody that wants to get into the, you know, to the bottom, to start racing from the bottom and work his way to the top, is creating this amazing and accessible opportunity for anybody to start, you know, going into local and national championships, working their way up to regional championships, and eventually having the chance to be in one of the top teams of the global championship. And as more and more riders come into the sport, E-Scooter expects the talent pool to be very inclusive from the start. You know, I think this is a sport that caters to, to really anyone. We're definitely gender neutral. It's really interesting to see how both men and women can compete. And I, and I think we will see some really good competition. We've had a lot of female riders apply. We're working really hard to create a, a really great community around all of this. ESC's ultimate goal is to use the sport to develop electric scooter technology, making it safer and more efficient than ever. And to drive the uptake of sustainable micro-mobility solutions in cities. Creating this global movement where we have many, many, many people riding all around the world, many people going to their nearest facility, you know, taking a scooter, riding on track and creating this this amazing sport that not only is a sport, but also ties into the whole world of micromobility. And ultimately, you know, the talents will come from the fans. We aspire basically every five, six-year-old kid to become an, an e-scooter champion one day so that they can in turn influence the newer generation and educate them about safe riding, about sustainability, and inspire them to aspire to become champions again. The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arlie Adlington, Isis Thompson, Paul Smith and Peggy Sutton from Something Else with Neil Cole. The annual Future Lab Live is taking place at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from the 8th to the 11th of July. Click the link in our show notes to find out more and book tickets to see for yourself some of the incredible technologies we're talking about in this podcast.